I am Matt Fender. I am not Rick Hutton, as you can see. Mr. Hutton is under the weather this morning and uh, called me uh, not very long ago and asked me to fill in. So uh, this morning we're going to make a study of Chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I ask that you please be kind to me as I had about 15 minutes to prepare this. Uh, that, <laughs> that said, I have, I have taught it before and I think we'll, uh, hopefully it will be profitable. So let me open us in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. For this opportunity to gather together this morning, we are grateful that we live in a time and place where we can assemble freely to study your word and the doctrines of the faith without fear of arrest. Uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters this morning, on this Lord's Day, throughout the world who do not have that privilege, and we pray that you will keep them safe and that your church will be grown and magnified. We also pray for the children being instructed elsewhere in the building this morning. We pray that each and every one of them would grow to say that he never knew a day when he was not trusting in Christ for his salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, uh, chapter 23 of our confession is entitled, Of the Civil Magistrate. It is, interestingly, one of the more, perhaps, controversial parts of the confession. I mean, I realize there are people who take issue with much of the confession, but even among Presbyterians, um, there has not always been universal agreement on this. And in fact, it is one of those paragraphs that's been substantially amended. Um, you have a handout on that, and we'll get to that partway through the class. But as we, as we jump in this morning, there are a few things we need to think about, right? We need to talk first about what, who, what exactly is a civil magistrate, and what does the Bible say about the civil magistrate? And then I think we, the next thing we have to look at is the historical context in which the Westminster Confession was written and the historical context in which paragraph 3 was amended, because that's going to inform our discussion. So I hope you have a Bible this morning, because I've got a number of scriptures I want to look at, and I didn't have time to put them in the slides. So let's look first at 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and I list the references here. And of course, here we're talking about King Uzziah, and here is what it says. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, one of the things that we see, and I think it's fair to say that it's a consequence of the fall, is a separation of the offices of prophet priest, and king. Adam is prophet, priest, and king, right? He's the only man, so he holds, he bears all three offices. But then after the fall, we see a severance of those offices, and we never see them again united in one man until Jesus. And, and, and frankly, it looks a bit like the eschatological Jesus, right? Because we didn't see Jesus exercising the power of the civil magistrate, for example, when he was on earth. But we know from Hebrews that he is, in fact, exercising the priestly office, right? Um, and we know that he's going to return in the new heavens and the new earth to exercise the civil authority as well. But in between Adam and Jesus, we don't see those offices united. 
And so um, this, this is one example here where King Uzziah, who clearly is the civil magistrate, um, is sinning by trying to take unto himself the priestly office. So this, this separation between the ecclesiastical power and the civil power is something that's with us in this present age. And we, th- we, we think it's a biblical principle that they're not to be united until they're united in Christ. So that's why 2 Chronicles 26. Romans 13, 1 through 7, very familiar, but very important. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And as we say frequently, the thing we have to remember about Romans 13, right, we read this and we think, oh, well, you know, gosh, you just don't understand. I live under this corrupt government and, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, killing babies and calling good evil and evil good and, you know, working, working great evil in the land. Well, how can I be expected to be subject to them? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote this and he was living in the Roman Empire, and Nero was the emperor. You know, he was burning Christians to death, uh, feeding them to lions. So I don't know that we're quite ready that we can say that Paul doesn't understand how bad our government is, right? So this is, I'm not saying this is easy, but I think we have to keep in mind that we, you know, we, we can't really complain. So Romans 13, keep that in your head. 1 Peter 2, 13-14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So Peter's a bit more concise here than Paul is, but they appear to be in agreement. Peter and Paul think the same thing, both living in the Roman Empire, both dealing with a horribly corrupt and pagan government, and they're both telling us to be subject to the civil authorities and recognizing that those civil authorities are sent to punish evil. Proverbs 8, 15 and 16. By me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles all who govern justly. All right, and finally, uh, back to the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, the Bible does have something to say to us about the civil authorities, not just by way of examples, but by way of express command, right, and, and, and wisdom. And so what do we make of this, right? This is a difficult thing to say how should we think about the civil magistrate. And I, I'm not proposing this morning to offer you a comprehensive class on how to interact with the government. That would be too much to bite off. 
Um, but as we look at chapter 23, we're specifically looking at the relationship between the institutional church and the government, right? That's, that's the principal thing that we're addressing. I'm not saying we can't digress a little bit, but that's what we're going to try to sort of take on. And, you know, uh, Christians about time have, have struggled with this. Um, at the moment, if you, you know, spend time uh, or perhaps waste time on the Internet, um, you'll note there's a lot of talk about Christian Reconstructionism, sometimes called, you know, theonomy or Christian nationalism, the idea that, you know, we should want to go found the perfect Christian nation somewhere and, um, you know, try to, try to live out the, uh, the civil law. Some people think the Old Testament civil, civil law um, in order to, to, you know, have the sort of better or perfect Christian life. I'll point out to you that's been tried before, um, and the Puritans in New England were perhaps the sort of OG Christian nationalist. You know, they, they went off into the wilderness to try to build the perfect Christian kingdom. It lasted about one generation, because the people that were really hardcore, that were willing to cross an ocean to do it, they died off, and their kids and grandkids just weren't that interested, and um, it, didn't, it didn't last for them. So um, do with that what you will, but we're going to look at what the Confession says this morning. But before we can, can do that, I want to talk a little bit about the historical context in which the Confession is written. So anybody know, what year was the Westminster Confession written? 1646 sound right? And what else is going on in 1646? We're in England. Okay, Westminster, we're, we're in England. Who's the king? Charles, somebody say Charles? Which one? Charles I. Charles I is king, and let's back that up. Charles I, what, what's his family name? He's a, he's a steward, right? Who's his dad? James. James I, James I. And how did James I get to be the king of England? He was nominated as king by his cousin, Elizabeth I, right, who was a queen regnant. And when she becomes queen regnant, as we back it up, that's sort of a novel thing, right? Because remember, this is, this is like the beginning of the modern era in terms of how people think about governments, right? So Elizabeth's father is, of course, Henry VIII, who very famously is desperate to have a, a male heir, right? And the, the English Reformation is facilitated providentially by Henry's very strong desire to have a male heir, because Henry is married to Catherine of Aragon. And why is she important? Who's her brother? Whose name is? Charles V. And he's not just king of Spain. He's the Holy Roman Emperor and the king of France. So he pretty much governs, you know, most of the known world, right? He's, an ex he's like the most powerful man in the world. And his sister is married to Henry VIII. And I'm sure when Henry thought he was marrying this guy's sister, that was going to work out well for him, right? It was going to be this great political alliance, and it was going to be going to cement their role and keep him from having to go to war with those countries. Well, unfortunately, they have only one child, uh, Mary Tudor, later Queen Mary, um, and no boys. And he's really worried about having some boys. Now, I think in our modern context employing a little chronological snobbery, we have a tendency to perhaps condemn Henry more than we ought. I'm not saying he didn't do bad things, but I think we have a tendency to think that his desire for a son was purely a matter of his personal vanity, right? He just wanted a boy, you know? But that, I don't think that's really fair, because we have to consider his context. Henry VIII is the son of Henry VII, Henry VII is the first consensus king England has for like a hundred years because of the War of the Roses. So they've been having this big civil war with lots of people getting killed and going back and forth and competing claims to the throne, and things are just not good in England. 
And so finally, Henry VII manages to get hold of the throne and be the king. Everybody agrees he's the king. And they finally have a stable government for the first time in 100 years. And so if you're Henry VIII, that's in your mind. You don't want to go back to that, right? And you're worried that because they haven't had a queen regnant. And so you're, you're concerned that if you don't have a strong son who can grab a hold of the reins and keep the government under control, you're going to go back into civil war. So, again, I'm not to say that what, what Henry did was, was right, but I think his motivation is a, little, is, is a little better than we perhaps sometimes ascribe to him, right? It's not just his personal vanity. He is concerned about the integrity of the government. Because the other thing, remember, Henry's within a generation of the time when everybody expected the king to put on armor and get on a horse and lead the armies in battle, right? That changes after him. Elizabeth is kind of the pivot for that, right? After her, we don't see any more kings of England getting on horses and leading the armies in battle. But before that, it wasn't enough to just be the son of the prior king. You had to be strong. You had to be a military man. You had to be able to go, to go lead in battle for people to respect you and follow you. So, so, you know, here's Henry, and he's just got, you know, his daughter Mary, and that's not going to work. And so he's, he, he decides that he wants to, you know, to get a, a different wife. You know, um, he was known, I think, he's fairly well known for his adultery, but, you know, non-marital children don't count. So he needs a different wife. So he wants to divorce. He can't, he can't just kill Catherine of Aragon, right, because her brother is going to, well, that's going to be bad. So he wants to divorce her. He asks the Pope to let him annul the marriage, and the Pope, who's also thinking about Charles V, decides he's not doing that. And so we get the English Reformation, right? Henry, Henry convinces Parliament to create the Church of England, um, which is really just, you know, at that point, Catholic Church Part Two that, you know, points to the Archbishop of Canterbury instead of to the Pope. And the new church tells Henry he can get divorced, and that's that. And then you go through the whole succession of wives, with which I will not bore you. But we have this, this context happens, and then Elizabeth is the queen. We go through Edward, and then Mary, and then Elizabeth, and she never marries and doesn't have any children. And so she designates her cousin, uh, James Stuart, who's already the king of Scotland, to be the king of England. So now we have the two thrones united in the person of James. And now James is a Presbyterian, sort of. I mean, who, who, who's his mother? Who's James's mother? Anyone? Mary, Queen of Scots. And who did she famously have conflict with? John Knox. And what is John Knox famous for? He founded the Presbyterian Church, right? He, he, again, providentially, because he can't get along with the queen, he gets made a galley slave, and he ultimately is exiled. He goes to Geneva, where he meets John Calvin, worships in the English congregation there, and you know, essentially becomes a Presbyterian, goes back, founds a Presbyterian Church, right? And so eventually, they, while James is a child, his mother is forced into exile and later executed. So he's basically raised by a bunch of Presbyterian pastors. You know, and so he's, he's used to press. He knows all about these Presbyterian guys. He's a little skeptical of them, but it is what it is. And suddenly he finds himself king of England. So James, he's, you know, I, I have no reason to think he's not a Christian, not a believer, but he's not willing to sort of go like whole hog into, into the Puritan thing. For example, he famously writes something called the Book of Sports. You can go home and Google it. It's short. It's worth reading. But this was his pamphlet that he put out on the various sports that you were allowed to play on the Lord's Day after you'd been to church twice. And this was controversial. The Puritans didn't like this. They thought you couldn't do any of that stuff at all. So the recreation clause we talk so much about today, it's been around since 1607 or so. It's not nothing, nothing new under the sun and a question of what recreations you could engage in. But that was, so that was James. He would have taken exception to the recreation clause had he been examined. 
So, <laughs> so, so, so this is all going on. James dies. His son Charles the first. Well, his two sons, James and Charles. Uh, Charles is the oldest. So Charles becomes. Or, excuse me. I'm thinking the next generation. Just Charles. Charles becomes king of England, right? And Charles is very jealous of his royal prerogatives at a time when the Puritans are now in the ascendancy, right? And people are starting to think a lot. They're reading the Bible. They're teaching the Bible. They're purifying the church. And, and the Puritans, are, are, they're a big deal right now. So we get into the 1640s, and we've got this big conflict between Parliament and the king, right? Who's going to be in charge, right? Where, where does the supreme civil power rest? Do we have a divine right monarch, or do we have an elected bicameral legislature? Which, I mean, we've got both, but which one is really in charge, right? Because the king has, at this time, has the power to call parliament and dismiss parliament. And so they go back and forth. They have the long parliament. And so the Westminster Assembly happens at this time. It's in the 1640s. This tension is going on. So when we look here in a minute at 23.3 and what they wrote about the relationship between the church and the king, that's the context they write it in. Right? They've got people who are you know, about to go to war over the question of who's in charge, Parliament or the king. And of course, as we all know, they do in fact go to war. We see the English Civil War, which results in, I love getting to say this, regicide, where Charles I uh, loses his head, and Oliver Cromwell, uh, as Lord Protector, uh, becomes the ruler of England for 10 years. Cromwell dies. His son is weak and doesn't really do well after him. And then we get the Restoration. You get Charles II, who has no children, his brother James II. Then we see 1688, the Glorious Revolution, parliamentary supremacy is assured. Um, but there's all this tension going on in the meantime. And so that's the context when they've called these men from all over England, essentially you know, elders, pastors, have assembled to write the Westminster Confession. And so let's keep that in mind as we look at the language. You can ask me questions. I might not know the answer, but if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to take them. Um, so here's 23.1. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, I think that part we can all agree on, right? Hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people. So we got this. God, civil magistrates, people, right? God's at the top. People are here. Civil magistrates are under him. For his own glory and the public good. So there's two reasons for this. There's you know, God's glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword. Okay, what do we mean by the power of the sword? Yes. The ability to punish people for not keeping the law. Yes, the ability to exercise any kind of physical punishment, right? We can ultimately it would be to execute someone, but it would also include lesser things like fining you, putting you in jail, doing stuff to you. So that's the civil power. Now let's compare that to the church power. Does the church have the power of the sword? Can the session put you in jail for sinning? Can we fine you? Can we execute people? No. Because the power of the sword is given exclusively to the civil magistrate, not to the church authority. So this is, this is a, a key point. He's, he's given them the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. 
So there's two purposes for it, defense and encouragement of them that are good and punishment of evildoers. So if China decides to invade Virginia, right, we would expect the civil authorities to defend us, right? We would expect the, the governor or maybe the federal authorities to, to you know, call up some, some people with guns, whether it's a militia or a standing army or whatever, um, and use airplanes and tanks and missiles and whatever to try to repel that invasion to protect the people. That's part of why they're given the power of the sword. And then the other, as Terrell said, is to you know, punish evildoers, to punish criminals. So big pic- this is sort of our big picture chapter, right? There are civil magistrates. They have the power of the sword, and they have the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. So that's kind of our foundational principle of Westminster 23. All right, questions about that? Okay, let's move to two. Some interesting issues here. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto. In the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth, so that for that end they may lawfully, now under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasion. All right, let's talk about some of the issues here, right? First clause, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate, all right? So that may seem self-evident, but it has not always been so throughout the history of the church. We don't have a theocracy. We don't have an expressly Christian government. So can a Christian whose first allegiance is to God and to, to, to live the Christian life according to God's precepts and his word, participate in a pagan government. And, I, and I'm not going to say secular because there's really no such thing as secular, right? Everybody worships something. Everybody has a worldview. So a government which claims not to be based upon any transcendental authority is ultimately a lie. Right, it isn't true. Every, 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 everybody has some ultimate authority they're appealing to. Um, it's just some, some false religion of, 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 of self or, or something else. But, um, and the answer is yes. But, but if we do so, we have to do so with guardrails. For example, my friend Richard Campbell is a circuit court judge in the city of Richmond. Right? He is a Christian. He's a ruling elder at uh, West End Press. And he also is, exercises the authority of the civil magistrate. Uh, but he has, he has to do so within the constraints of the Scriptures. And if he, were, if he felt himself compelled to, to do something or, or that he thought you know, violated his conscience, well, then he would have to resign from that, from that job, right? Um, and so, but yes, we can do that. Arguably, um, you know, I as a civil lawyer am exercising some power of the civil magistrate as I function in the, in the courts. When, you know, many of us this week on Tuesday went and voted um, in, in a Republican form of government, when you vote, you are exercising the power of the civil magistrate. You are, in fact, exercising the power of the sword, right? Because you are voting for legislators who will make laws which will be enforced by men with guns. So if you don't think it's an act of force to vote, you're mistaken, right? You, it, is, it absolutely is. You are absolutely exercising power over others when you fill in your little bubble and stick it in the machine. Um, so, yes, it is lawful to do that, and that would, and then it says here, the next clause, as I alluded to earlier, in the managing thereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. 
So, so there's a way to do this, right? Yes, yes, you can, you can exercise the power of civil magistrate, but you have to do so in such a way to maintain piety, justice, and peace. And note the modifier, the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. That seems to suggest there can be some laws which aren't wholesome um, and, and which perhaps ought to be modified. And of course, when we say, you know, the words magistrate and commonwealth, these come up all the time in the, in the Westminster Confession. They're a little bit old-fashioned, but by commonwealth, we simply mean um, a state, you know, some, some, sort of, some sort of civil society. And then, and then the, the civil magistrate is a term we use for people in government. So that, so for that end, they may lawfully, now under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasion. Now, in order to get this, we have to understand, I think, sort of biblical view of war. And it's easy, I think, here to fail to rightly divide the Word of God if we don't understand the structure of the redemptive historical narrative and particularly um, the, the covenants as they have evolved. Because we see in the Scriptures, we see real holy war, right? In the sense that um, doesn't apply to us today. Think about the conquest. If you look at the book of Joshua and you look at the book of Judges, you see the people of God who at that time are exclusively identified with a nation state, with Israel, being given an express mandate by God to go execute a holy war and to do what is probably properly described as genocide, right? They're supposed to wipe out the people of the land. They're supposed to put them to the sword. And in fact, they sin when they fail to do so and reap severe consequences as a result, right? God has told them, hey, I'm going to go before you. You've got to go get rid of the, you know, the Hittites and the Philistines and the Moabites, all those people. You've got to go kill them all. And Israel is you know, somewhat less than enthusiastic about this. Once they sort of get a you know, good bit of the land under control, they just sort of lose interest and stop, right? And then they spend the rest of the time that they're in the land fighting all those people that they failed to conquer. But they clearly have a mandate from God to go pick up the sword, right? Every Sunday school kid can tell you about marching around the walls of Jericho and all, you know, this, this, this is it, right? And so what are we going to do with that? Well, the, the short answer is that only applies to that period of history because during this period between coming out of the wilderness and being carried off into exile, the kingdom of God on earth is particularly identified with this one people, one nation. But in our era, in the era of the church, that's no longer the case. If you don't believe me, read Acts chapter 10. When the Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles, Peter is told that he should associate with the Gentiles. And it's no longer limited to those who are descendants of Abraham of the flesh. Paul writes about this in Romans extensively, right? But the kingdom of God, the, the true Israel in the New Testament era in which we live, are those who are united, who are children of Abraham by faith, right? And it has exactly nothing to do with whether you were a physical, biological, genetic descendant of Abraham. And there is no one nation state that can now claim to be the exclusive people of God. I don't know who said this, but I like it. All governments are God governments, but no nation is God's chosen nation. Um, So given that, we don't have mandates from God about waging war, right? God does not want us to go carry out a holy war. Being a Christian in the age of the church is about waiting on God to fight for us, because he is coming, 
and he will right all wrongs, and he will wipe away every tear, and he will restore the world to the way it ought to be. But our task in this age, in the age of the church, is to wait upon the Lord and be faithful. All right, so Matt, you just said all that stuff. What does it say here that says we can wage war on unjust and necessary occasions? How are you going to reconcile that? Well, the answer is the church doesn't start wars. The church doesn't fight wars. But we as individual believers in our civil capacity, and we each have a civil capacity. I just talked about voting. <clears throat> May, when called upon, fight in those wars. If the, civil, if the civil magistrate goes to war, if the United States goes to war with North Korea, and they're looking for volunteers for the army, it is perfectly lawful to participate in that when called upon by the civil magistrate. Now, I'll note that it talks about just and necessary occasion. There is a vast body of scholarship about what constitutes a just versus an unjust war. And there is um, and a fairly sophisticated argument to be made that it's okay to participate in some wars but not in others based upon whether they are just wars. A proper discussion of that is outside the scope of my class this morning. Um, it might be something I'll take up at some time in the future because it is a matter of some, some significant interest as to what is and what is not a just war and how we should think about that ethically. Um, but to the extent um, a Christian is, is compelled, you know, perhaps drafted, pressed into service, or maybe you're you know, in the military at the time the war breaks out, um, I don't think there's a problem of conscience typically with serving. We can certainly think of, of situations where you might be ordered by the civil authorities to do something which is unjust, and in that case, you ought not uh, violate your conscience. But that is what I had to say about that. Questions about chapter 2? All right. Does everybody have a handout? Raise your hand if you do not have a handout. All right. See, no hands. Everybody's got one. So what I put on the screen here, and I split it between two slides, um, but you've got the handout, is 23.3. This has troubled me for nigh on 20 years. What you may not know, if you haven't thought about it, is that the 23.3 that we have as the PCA, which we inherited from our predecessor denomination, is not the original 23.3. What you have there in the right column of the handout is our version, and what you have in the left column is the original version. So let's read it and talk about it. Original version. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yet he hath authority, and it is his duty, to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline be prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, for the better affecting whereof he hath power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. What, what do you think about that, right? That's, I mean, if you, if you look at this carefully, this is granting, this is recognizing at least, that the civil magistrate has a tremendous amount of authority over the church, right? It starts off, and the two, you'll note the two start off the same way, by saying he can't assume to himself the administration of word and sacrament or the powers of the keys of the kingdom. But then it goes on, he's got, he has authority and he has a duty to make sure that unity and peace are preserved in the church. So if you know, we come into conflict with some brethren and decide we're going to go off and start our own denomination, the, the, apparently the government can stop us. 
right? He's, he's interested in the government and government, I mean, the unity and peace of the church. That the truth of God be kept pure and entire? Well, what's the limiting principle on that? Does that mean the government's going to decide our doctrinal controversies? Right? We're having the, re, the revoice controversy about, you know, about, about you know, what, what does it mean to be a, a side B Christian and we're going to go ask the government? We're, the the governor is going to come down and tell us the answer? Um, that seems to be what this, this recognizes, right? Blasphemies and heresies are going to be suppressed. Well, that seems to necessarily imply that the civil magistrate is going to exercise judgment as to what is a blasphemy or a heresy. That's pretty extreme. So is there going to be a department of theology, you know, there's the, a, a federal agency that's in charge of determining the blasphemies and heresies and, and, and putting them down, and there's going to be some, some court process? Um, corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed. All right, so now the government's also going to tell us how we can worship. Should we take up a collection or not? Should we have a praise band? Should we have a projector? We'll have to go ask the government. Because apparently the government, according to this, has the power to decide. Um, that all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. Right? So this is clear that 23.3, the original version, is recognizing, is acknowledging that the civil government has a very large role to play in the governance of the church. Now, it seems to carve out the administration of word and sacraments and the power of the keys of the kingdom to some sphere of church authority. It seems to recognize that there are church leaders who have, you know, certain, certain sphere of power, but it's pretty limited compared to all the stuff that the government gets to do here. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind is we have to take off our, you know, 21st century goggles and back up 500 years is that up until the modern era, and I mean the very modern era, like second half of the 19th century probably, um, maybe the first half of the 19th century, throughout the history of the world, people have, and governments in particular, have viewed religion as a means of social control, right? They've seen it as a way to keep the people in line. And so the government wants to be in charge of the church because it's part of the way that you keep the people happy. Right? Is you you make sure that you that you and the church are telling the same story, and the church is telling them they got to be good citizens and pay their taxes, and you're making sure there's you know festivals and holy days and all this stuff, and their lives are being regulated in such a way that everybody's happy and and that and the government remains stable, and you as the rulers get to keep being in charge and collecting taxes, and so the idea of giving that up, of turning it loose, of letting the churches sort of run around and do whatever they want, um, that's a very modern idea. Right? And it's clearly not an idea that was written into the original 23.3 of the Confession. Because remember, you got Charles I looking over their shoulder, and he's not going to be too keen if they put out a version of a document saying the civil magistrate has no power of the church and the king should really just leave us all alone. That, um, that would not have gone over well. So I, I, I don't say that to suggest that these guys had bad motives or weren't doing the best they could, um, but it's certainly looks a little bit undue, and it makes you think back to where we started in 2 Chronicles 26 about the civil magistrate interjecting himself unnecessarily into the ecclesiastical sphere and where those limits are. And we don't have, you know, some strict scriptural warrant for exactly what that looks like, but we certainly know the civil and ecclesiastical powers should be separate. So now let's look at our version of 23.3. 
So this is written in 1788. Yes? Well, so at this point, you don't really have religious freedom. And let me say, I mean, you've got Presbyterians in Scotland, you've got Church of England in England. Right, exactly. there's, and there's a few Catholics hiding. <laughs> No, I think, I think that's right. So the comment was that, um, you know, at this point, we've got a very limited number of, you know, church organizations, church denominations, really only, you know, one in each of England and Scotland, and therefore it seems more reasonable for the, for the government to be communicated with. I think that's right, and, and we, um, we certainly see some of that. And, but part of the reason there's a limited number of church organizations is because the government doesn't let there be anymore, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like there's, you know, no, no, it didn't occur to anybody to start, start their own. Because, I mean, the Church of England at that point, and even now, the bishops in the Church of England, certain of them have seats in the House of Lords, right? They don't have, you know, this sort of clean demarc. You know, even, to, even today, the Church of England is the established church in England and funded by the government. Same thing with the Presbyterian Church. Although, I'll point out to you, there is a Free Church of Scotland, which is not affiliated with the government, which is actually Orthodox, and it's a pretty good church, uh, that, whereas the established Presbyterian Church is, uh, is probably no church at all um, if we look at their, their practices. So let's look at the 1788 version. So what's going on in 1788? <laughs> what, what, what's happening in these United States in 1788? Say it. No, revolution just happened. The Constitution, right? They've written the Constitution. And then in 1789, we get, you know, the Bill of Rights. So what are people thinking about? Are they thinking about absolute monarchy at this time? No, they're thinking about republicanism, right? They're thinking about liberty. Um, and they're thinking about, you know, sort of Lockean ideas about the structure of government and, you know, how gov- instead of government being by divine right, it's by consent of the governed. Right? So the, things are very different, and they're starting sort of tabula rasa with how they're going to do a government. Right? So here's what they come up with, right? and this has, been, this has been passed down to us. There have been a few other changes to the confession since then, but this, this has come down to us from 1788 and is um, in our uh, book today. Um, Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that part's the same. Now we diverge. Or, in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, what's, what's, whatever shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And, as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline to his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner that no person be suffered either upon pretense of religion or infidelity to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. So that is clearly a mouthful. It's also remarkable in a number of ways. Now, the first thing that, I don't know if this jumps out at you, but it certainly jumped out at me, was this reference to nursing fathers. You ever wonder what exactly is a nursing father? That, that seems like a very odd turn of phrase. It is from this passage in Isaiah, 
And you'll note if you look at your ESV Bible, it says foster fathers. So this nursing fathers turn of phrase is from the King James, but I put it up here. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. And they shall bring thy sons in their arms and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. So this is part of Isaiah's prophecy to the, to the exiles, etc. But that is the, that is the reference. This, then you see this sort of discussion here of how the civil magistrates can interact with, with God's people. Um, so the, the Westminster the Assembly, the, of course, this isn't the Westminster Assembly. This is 1788. So in 1788, they're using that same language to insert it here. But we see the idea that the civil magistrate is supposed to be nurturing the church, not governing the church, but if we, if, we, if we kind of look at this in the aggregate, kind of creating an environment in which the church can thrive, right? We're supposed to be able to meet unmolested, right? We're not supposed to, to be, let to people do violence to us based upon our religious beliefs or lack thereof. There's supposed to be this kind of like, you know, marketplace of Christianity where, where you know, it, it certainly contemplates multiple denominations of Christians that are voluntary societies, right, where people can, can meet together and choose which one they want to be in and, and do so freely. Um, that seems to be what it's promoting. But what doesn't it promote? What doesn't it include? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Does it, does it say that the Muslims are free to worship as they like? No. That is, that is clearly not what they're thinking, right? So, um, they seem to be acknowledging a certain degree of religious liberty, but it seems to be limited to Christianity, right? Which is easy enough to conclude, right? I believe the Bible is true. I think Christianity is true. Therefore, why would I want to encourage people to teach something other than Christianity? The problem with that principle, of course, is, is, is what's the limiting principle? Why would I let anybody believe anything other than what I believe? So um, there's a little bit of tension there for, for sure, um, but, but this is what they came up with, and probably... It's as good as what we can come up with. You know, I, like all the other elders, have sworn that I believe this to be true, and, and I heartily affirm that. If we looked, at the, we looked at the Scripture principles when we started, that civil and ecclesiastical authorities must be kept separate, the people must submit to the civil magistrate, the civil magistrate must do what is good, and, you know, yeah, I think this is a, this is a fair summary. We start to run into trouble when we... Are, are we we start to feel tension about this when we see a government which utterly rejects Christianity, right? I don't think in 1788, it's certainly not true that everybody who was involved in the founding and everybody who was involved in writing the Constitution was a real Christian. That's certainly not true. Some of them were, but not all of them were. But nobody was openly going around denouncing Christianity. You didn't have the, the government, you know, persecuting Christians. You didn't have the government openly advocating for things which were contrary to the law of God, right? That, that's, that's certainly a pivot that we've now made. So some of this in paragraph three probably looks a lot more aspirational to us today than it did to the men who wrote it. Yes, Sidney. Yeah, so the comment was that a number of the state constitutions included limits on who could govern, that you had to acknowledge a, um, you know, future state and uh, uh, with, with consequences for rewards and punishments in this life. It's funny, that's actually been in, 
play as we've been talking about the PCA Constitution this year because there was a proposed amendment to change the test for who can testify in a church trial, which was that same test. So anyway, I see Peter has a question in the back or comment. That, that is true. No, and it certainly there was congregationalism was established in like for Massachusetts, I think, into, this, into the 1820s. So yes, it's absolutely true. Now, why is that? Well, let's talk about that. Here on the screen is the First Amendment, and I have put in bold the first clause, uh, which is called the, referred to as the Establishment Clause, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So Congress can't create an established church. We don't have the Church of the United States. But remember, in 1789, exactly nobody thought this, this bound the states. So nobody read this as saying, Virginia shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Everybody thought it only limited the federal government. And that doesn't change until 1865 when you get the 14th Amendment, uh, which through various match, and, and it's not really 1865, it's really the next 100 years, through which the Supreme Court starts to selectively incorporate uh, provisions of the Bill of Rights to bind the states. So the idea that a state you know, that Virginia can't create an established church. Nobody thought the Constitution prohibited that until I'm pretty sure the 20th century. I have to go back and find the exact date of the Supreme Court said that, but that's, that's the case. And, but of course, the other thing we see with the Establishment Clause, it's been read much, much more broadly that the modern federal courts don't limit it to just not making an established church. They, they, they've expanded it to mean any government recognition of any religious belief or practice essentially whatsoever. And that's clearly not what it meant to the framers, um, but it is what it is. Yes, Lamont. That, that is certainly how some people seem to look at it. Um, although I think the current Supreme Court doesn't exactly take that view, and we may see some different things coming out. But anyway, that, that, that aside, the point being, at the time this was passed, that it's, you know, P Peter points out very rightly that there were established churches, and now Virginia was not one of them, right? Virginia was, the, was the, one of the first to abolish its established church. We had Anglicanism as the established church during the colonial period. Almost immediately after the Revolution, Thomas Jefferson and, and friends decide they're going to pass a statute which abolishes that and creates, makes Virginia you know, religion neutral, as it has been since then. Um, so anyway, that is that. Is that. Um, let me move on here as, as we're closing in on the hour to paragraph 4. It is the duty of people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for conscience' sake. Infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrates' just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to them, from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted, much less, hath, much less hath the Pope any power and jurisdiction over them in their dominions or over any of their people, and least of all to deprive them of their dominions or lives if he shall judge them to be heretics or upon any other pretense whatsoever. All right, there's actually quite a lot here. Let's take it sort of a clause at a time. First, it is the duty of the people to pray for magistrates, Right? Um, I think we acknowledge that, right? The Scripture certainly gave us that with the passages we talked earlier, and you'll note in our practice here at All Saints, we do so frequently. Whenever I do the pastoral prayer during worship, I always devote a paragraph or so to praying for the civil magistrate. Now, what do we pray for? 
well, we, we don't typically get up and pray that the, they'll reduce our taxes by 5% this year. Um, we, <laughs> we, we, because we get, that's sort of the church invading the civil sphere. What we do, we pray that the Lord will raise up leaders who will govern in accordance with the Scriptures, that those who are in office now that are not believers would be converted, that God would take away their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh, that they would confess Christ and govern in accordance with the Word of God, that he would give them strength and wisdom to govern well, um, these are the kinds of things we, we ask for, right? To, to honor their persons and pay them tribute or other dues. Yeah, it says right in you know, Romans 13 we, and in First Peter, we've got to pay taxes. You know, do we sometimes think the taxes that are exacted from us seem unjust? Yes, certainly, all the time. But that said, I, don't, I have a biblical duty to do so. Is there some outer limit to that? Well, I don't know, maybe, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, save that one for another day. But for the moment, yeah, you got to pay your taxes, right? To obey their lawful commands. Note the, the qualifier there, lawful. That leads to some questions, right? When the government's doing something which violates its own law, which violates the Constitution, for example, do we have a duty to obey it? Um, there's arguments to be made both ways here. There are, there are you know, brothers with whom we are in fellowship who would say, no, you just have to do whatever they say. There are others who would say, oh, no, no, when, they, when they're giving you a command which is unconstitutional, which violates their own law, you don't have a duty to obey it. I'm not going to settle that one here this morning. And be subject to their authority for conscience sake. Why for conscience sake? Because the Word of God has commanded us to be subject to their authority. Right? So would it violate your conscience to not do what the civil magistrate tells you? Um, certainly. And we have to think here, too, about there are some things which the civil magistrate might tell you to do which could violate your conscience, right? The, the example of the guy who doesn't believe in, you know, in killing that is drafted into the army and doesn't want to you know, shoot the guys on the other side. Um, but there's other things the civil magistrate tells you to do which don't have any particular moral component. Um, what we call pure positive law. And my favorite example of this is driving on the right side of the road, right? There's no moral content to driving on the right versus the left side of the road. I've, I've driven cars in, the, in Australia and in the United Kingdom where I drove on the left side of the road. Um, I found it very odd and uncomfortable, but that's what I was supposed to do there because that's what the civil measure there has decreed. And so it, isn't, it would be morally wrong of me to drive on the wrong side of the road, not because it has any moral content one way or the other, but because that's what the civil magistrate has decreed. The same reason I have to drive the speed limit and come to a complete stop at a stop sign, bring in my trash cans from the street. Also, all sorts of things which are essentially morally neutral that I have to do because they've been decreed by the leaders that God has put in authority. Infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority. Well, there goes that loophole. Um, <laughs> I was hoping I could get out of that one. Well, I don't have to pay taxes because, you know, the governor is a Pentecostal, and I don't believe in Pentecostalism. I believe in the cessation of the gifts, so I don't have to pay any state taxes this year. Nope, not getting out of that one. Um, and, and we just have to go back and look at what Paul and Peter wrote when they're being governed by Nero, and I don't think we have a serious, serious argument there, nor free the people from their due obedience to them. Now, here you go. From which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted. What does that mean? Who's an ecclesiastical person? Well, they, they, they mean, you know, pastors, elders, church leaders, right? So there is a, and you have to think back Middle Ages 
when you had the Church of Rome, which is claiming that they're exempt from civil authority. So they set up a monastery somewhere, or they have a bishop, and the bishop holds a bunch of lands. He's got a bunch, since, since land is the principal means of holding wealth in that time and place, you know, the, the local bishop has got a whole bunch of you know, farms and peasants and stuff that's all going on and generating wealth and income, and they claim they're exempt from taxation. Right? They don't have to pay any taxes to the civil magistrate. So this is sort of denying that. I will point out to you that we pay no taxes on this building because in, in the Constitution of Virginia, there is an exemption that says church property used for religious purposes is not subject to taxation. That's not a, like, some like, federal right. That's just something that's written in the Constitution of Virginia. I wonder how long that might last. But um, for the time being, we don't have to pay any real estate taxes. And then we get into this business, more stuff about the Pope. Much less hath the Pope any power and jurisdiction over them in their dominions uh, or over any of their people. So this is denying that the Pope of Rome has power over the civil magistrate. Because remember, throughout the Middle Ages, you've got all this tension. You've got the Pope not just excommunicating people, but putting whole countries under interdict, saying your whole country is excommunicated until you bow to my will, right? At one point, you've got the Pope has armies and is fighting wars <laughs> and owns, owns you know, principalities there in, in uh, Italy. And so, you know, it's against that backdrop that they're writing this and saying, oh, no, 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 no none of that. None of that. This is, they're, they're recognizing here, you know, even in 1646, that there's this sharp distinction between the civil and the ecclesiastical authority and rebuking the attempts by the putative Church of Rome to blur that line or cross that, that line. And it says, you know, he can't um, deprive them of their dominions or lives if he shall judge them to be heretics or upon any pretense whatsoever. I like the word pretense, suggesting that perhaps it was not a sincere uh, matter of difference in doctrine that led to these judgments, but something more perhaps Machiavellian than that. All right, that is what I had for you this morning. I appreciate your attention. Uh, yes, it, it's the American Presbyterian Church. And so you've, even by that time, we'd already had a schism um, but I think Old Side and New Side is back together by 1788. Dennis, is that, do you know? I think so, and I think Or a synod. I'm not sure what they called it, but it was American Presbyterians getting together at a meeting. Again, I don't remember without looking it up what they called it, but yeah, so they're, they're already doing that by this point. And, and I mean, we, we do a lot of schisming in Presbyterianism. So there's a lot of, of splitting up and getting back together and going off on your own. And I mean, it's, it's, I've got a chart. There's an excellent book called um, Seeking Another Country by Daryl Hart and John Merther, who Rick, Rick's taught a few times. And if you look on the flyleaf, it's got this like diagram of all the schisms. It looks like a bowl of spaghetti. But what that really reflects, right, is we put a great emphasis on doctrinal purity. And there's always a tension between purity and peace, right? And we all, as, as members, you've all promised to study the purity and peace of the church. And they're always in tension. If you look at Roman Catholicism, they put an emphasis on unity above all else, and they tolerate an amazing doctrinal diversity among their teachers and preachers and what they call priests because they don't want to split. Whereas we're willing to split, you know, if needed, because we, 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 we think doctrinal purity is what's really important. They're always in some tension, but it's just a characteristic of Presbyterianism. Thank you all again. We've reached the hour. I look forward to seeing you in worship.